Welcome to our podcast with super fans Rose and Sam and Malika too. She's undecided if she even likes it. But we watched our game and talk about it because it's fun. We probe the wormholes, yes we do, because we have nothing. Better to do so. Listen, here's our show. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Probing the Wormhole with me, Malika, new to this series, and my co hosts, Rose, super fan of Stargate, uh, Samantha, another super fan of Stargate. And today we're going to be talking about episode 14 Singularity. <laughs> your general vibe of this episode it's definitely a carter episode and not a chipper one yeah this is really a sam episode and i love it so it's a little heavy but compared to like cold lazarus which was another heavy episode involving kids that one i I didn't like as much like it it felt very emotionally manipulated into crying and this one when i cried i felt like it was completely justified yeah this one felt more sincere yeah it was it was much better written i thought but I didn't cry at this one. Did you cry, Sam? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I cried everything. <laughs> Except like real life, but TV shows, I cried everything. <laughs> okay, so this episode opens in the gate room. And we have the team walking up to the gate. And we find out that they're going to a planet to see an eclipse. And of course... Daniel is incredulous that O'Neill knows more about astronomy than he does. And Daniel always seems so surprised that O'Neill actually knows something. So they go through the gate and we are suddenly on the planet of Hinka. And it was settled by SG-7. And there's an observatory there that is going to be used to photograph the black hole that is going to be visible during the eclipse. It did feel a little like colonialism-y, the whole, hi, so because this planet was inhabited, right? These people aren't indigenous to that planet or, you know, as indigenous as they could be after they were stolen from Earth 5,000 years ago. And SG, whatever, six, four, three, whatever it was. Seven. Seven. Slap a sign on there says, you know, observatory, and they like are administering this. It just felt very like benevolent leader colonialism type situation. I mean, completely in line again with the history of Western civilization. So not surprising, but I didn't love it. Well, and especially later on when we hear that the inhabitants of the planet were saying, when the eclipse comes, we will all be killed. And Daniel's like, we told them that that wasn't going to be the, what was going to happen. And then we didn't listen and now they're all dead. Right. So yeah, definitely. This is very like small pox on the blanket. Right. But we, so we eventually learn that it's uh, Nirti who did this. Does that mean that Nirti has been uh, sort of laying the groundwork for this day for a long time? And uh, that's why everyone thought that there would be this huge disease when the eclipse came? But was the point to destroy Earth's Stargate? Because Earth's Stargate's only been open for, what, a year, almost a year? Well, how long has Nirti been doing this? Because where did this idea come? come from that they would there that there would be a uh, a sickness during the eclipse 
No, I, and we do learn a little later that Nurti has been involved in this planet for quite some time. So, I mean, because if she did it specifically to destroy Earth's Stargate, then it is their fault, or it is that their presence is what led to this happening. Well, number one, I didn't know Nirti was a person. I thought that was like, I thought it was like a group of ghouls. I didn't know that was like the, the enemy of Apophis. I didn't know it was an actual single person. So thank you. <laughs> and number two, later on, we'll find out that everything has been put in place just to blow up Earth's Stargate. So I'm thinking that this would not have happened at the eclipse if Stargate 7 hadn't been there, right? Right, then to Sam's point, wouldn't, then why would they have like, did they just like seven months ago get some message that on this, on this eclipse they would die? It seemed sort of like a, a deep-seated belief, like part mm -hmm. of their mythology or something. Yeah. So yeah, Nirti is actually a, uh, a Hindu goddess. Oh, she is? Yes. I love Hindu goddesses. Yeah, I, yeah. The way that it was talked about the way Tilk said it I didn't hear him say like she he didn't yeah. actually I think he actually referred to Nirti as a he too but the, we learn later or we've already learned that the Gaul are genderless we haven't learned yet but they are oh, okay. so they can actually take hosts of different genders so we have the Stargate one team walking onto the planet of Hanka and we see somebody dead and I was so excited that they started yelling mop four, mop four. And they actually had biohazard procedures in place. That was the first time we've seen that. Like, Except for Teal'c. Teal'c is like, yeah, he's like, whatever. Infection means nothing to me. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I know you have a gold and that cures stuff, but like, that means never, you never, ever have to take any kind of precaution. So- so Malika, do you know about this, the MOP4 protections? Okay. No, and actually it seemed kind of ridiculous that they just put on a hood that's not sealed <laughs> or anything at the bottom. And uh, O'Neill just kind of wipes what looked like iodine on his hands. Um, but hey, I am happy to see anything other than them like licking the dead person's sores. So what does MOP4 mean? Is, oh, is it means uh, mission-oriented protective posture. Is for the highest level? It is, yeah. So when you think you're there's some kind of biohazard, you go to MOP4? Right. When would you go to MOP1? When someone sneezes, maybe. <laughs> but MOP4 does involve a suit, like an actual, like a different suit than the, the uh, BDUs that they wear. So this isn't true MOP4. Well, maybe this is like travel for because <laughs> we do see like full-on biohazard hazmat suits later so they get to this is the only dead body that they see they continue on to the observatory there's lots of ominous music and no people and then they find everybody dead in their beds with sores on them everyone like over a thousand people daniel was able to check on over a thousand people in what like a minute <laughs> He, he counts fast. Yeah. yeah, he did run in there quick. So he probably ran around the whole planet and counted all the dead bodies. So how fast is this illness? So nobody was warned, right? They just, they were expecting to find a fully alive team. 
to not be able to get to the gate to dial out to say, don't come here. It must have been like minutes, right? Minutes from infection to dead. Not only did it have to kill you in minutes, but it had to kill everyone at the same time within minutes so that nobody could get a warning out. I would think so. That's pretty fast. They found people just laying down. They were obviously doing work in the fields and they were just laying down on the side of the road. So it must have been really quick. I mean, you're like working your field. You're like, oh shit, I feel like bad. And you like lie down and then you're dead. You're like, I have a sore. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought was interesting because, you know, it's not really based on what we know about biological contaminants. Because usually when you're that sick, it's like you think of like Ebola or like smallpox or something like that. Actually, now that I think about it, those sores did look like smallpox sores, but smallpox doesn't kill within minutes. Right. That's right. It had to be some kind of enhanced organism because even the most virulent biological organism won't kill you that fast. Unless it's the next COVID variant (laughs) that's coming for us. So the group was able to contact Earth, and now we have Dr. Frazier and her team and an actual decontaminating room. I know. I'm so excited about that. But they but they should be stripping. They shouldn't have their clothes on. You can't put that on TV. Yeah. That would be definitely a shipper's corner if Sam and O'Neill had to strip naked. (laughs) Which reminds me of Enterprise's whole naked decon room. Is that why they're naked in there? Yeah. Okay. And why do they have to rub things on each other? I don't know. No, but you do. When you get decontaminated, this whole like, like mist, this white smoky (laughs) mist, that doesn't, that's nothing. It's supposed to be like, you have to scrub I don't watch your Star Trek stuff, but I think naked and being scrubbing is the way it goes. <laughs> they okay. don't scrub on and they sort of gently massage each other. Doesn't seem to be effective at anything other than creating unnecessary sexual tension. <laughs> so we're back outside. We find out that over a thousand people have died and the team is now in their little yellow hazmat suits. And This is when Daniel says that the people had talked about this prophecy, and I am going to use that word because we're going to come back to it, about an apocalypse coming at the time of the eclipse. And the team, I guess SG7, told them that they would be fine. And this is when we meet a little girl who we will find out later is named Cassandra, and she's stealing body tags, which is gross. Um... (laughs) Cassandra is from Greek mythology, and she was a Trojan princess who Apollo fell in love with. And so one of the things that he did was he gave her the power to have prophecy and see into the future. She didn't fall in love with him. So he punished her. He cursed her with her still having this ability to see the future, but that nobody believed her. And so she even warned of the Trojan horse and nobody and the fall of Troy and nobody listened to her. So Daniel's what feels like a kind of throwaway line from Daniel is actually that's why she has this name, Cassandra. These people said that during the eclipse, we will die and nobody listened. It's interesting that she's sort of representing her whole population. So we're back at the facility. 
And this is when Sam tries to take the body tag away from Cassandra and she won't let her. Dr. Frazier discovers through blood tests that in fact, Cassandra has what the Stargate is made out of, Naquida, Naquida in her blood. Uh, Dr. Fraser actually found the, that the bacteria was in the water and the ground and everywhere except for Cassandra. And of course, Daniel says, he asks pretty much if he's infected. Are we okay? Am I okay? Because that's all he cares about. Because I hate Daniel. <laughs> Still? I, oh, just wait. I got some <laughs> stuff to say about Daniel later on. Well, so... The Naquita would be in every single Stargate. Is that what allows them to do this travel through the wormhole? Is Naquita what creates the wormhole? So Naquita is in, it's the Stargate element. I'm not a chemist, but like if it's an, if it's an element they've never seen before, it must be a super heavy element, right? Because we've identified every element through what, 200 and something? So it's going to be, it's a stable, super heavy element, which even my limited understanding of chemistry is very unusual. So that's one weird thing. There is, it is in every Stargate, but we do encounter a Stargate in which it's not in the season five, a constructed Stargate. I have no idea what you're talking about. It's the episode <laughs> with Orlin. Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. So that might break some conventions, but for the most part, yeah, it's the Stargate element, but it's also used for other things. Like they mine Naquita and they use it for like weapons and a whole bunch of stuff. Oh, okay. We get to the gate room and... Sam shows Cassandra to her bed chamber, which would be part of the <laughs> barracks. That is like the grayest room I've ever seen. <laughs> and Sam's like, I gotta go. I gotta go, but I'll, I'll be watching you through a camera. <laughs> like, how does that not freak a kid out who just lost every single person that they've ever known in their entire life and went through a wormhole to another planet? And then you just <laughs> dash them and lock them in. A great room and be like, I'm watching you. <laughs> camera. Even though you don't know what a camera is. Yeah, I have a note here that I'm like, are you really gonna put this fucking traumatized as hell kid in this like prison room <laughs> with nothing in it and no one to watch her? It seems so fucked up. Like they should have a dedicated child psychologist with this kid 24-7. Yeah, they, they were so unprepared for this. And I I hope that's not what happens in reality. <laughs> like if they suddenly encounter a traumatic child out there and they bring him, bring him or her back. And why are there surveillance cameras in rooms? Like people will sleep in there, right? Are they, are they always on? Are you watching yeah. people sleep and change and do whatever they do in bed? Yeah, it's the military. I'm not surprised. That's so creepy. So like, so if they have visitors, they sleep in this surveilled room and every time they change their clothes, somebody's watching them. No, because remember there was the room, <laughs> their guest room that was a Hammond's office with a huge bed in it. Remember <laughs> from Hathor. So they have diplomat rooms that are not cameraed up. She didn't, yeah, she didn't get one of those. That seems like an invasion of privacy. I don't think the military cares about privacy. <laughs> so we're back at the boardroom, and this is when Fraser tells Hammond that her theory about a harmless bacteria from Earth has mutated and killed everybody on this planet. And that she wants to study the, the kid, Cassandra, because she seems to have a natural immunity. 
And it's like well within the realm of possibility that they would be doing that this would be a result of them venturing into the galaxy. So it seems a tad irresponsible. But then I guess you wouldn't have a show. So well, in reality, they should be wearing those yellow rubber suits wherever they go. Right. Yeah. I mean, Star Trek gets around this as a, just a comparison by because the transporter does its own decon. But yeah, they, they're just basically like, fuck it. Let's just go see what happens. So we are transported through the boardroom's camera to Cassandra's room. And we see Sam and Cassandra kind of playing together. And all of a sudden, there is a pink explosion of all this girl stuff. There's flower pictures everywhere. There's comforters. There's stuffed animals. Where did they get this stuff? Within like, what, 15 minutes? <laughs> Do they have Target at this time? Kmart? I think they had Kmart, Kmart. in the 90s. And this is where we see a very traumatized Cassandra draw picture. This is like art therapy of her crying over a ton of dead bodies. Yeah, pretty intense. Mm -hmm. But I, I like uh, Carter's, I don't know if this is psychologically proper, but I do like Carter's reaction, drawing herself into the picture. Yeah, I think I cried at this point. <laughs> also, they're feeding her crap. Were they giving oh. her hot dogs? Like get a child psychologist and a nutritionist. Come on, you like nobody in this space has ever cared for a kid before. It's hard to get a kid to eat though. <laughs> right now we're trying to feed my youngest food and he's just saying, no, he hates pizza. Really? What the hell do you give a child who doesn't like pizza? Hot dogs. Uh, hot dog. I should try hot dogs, yeah, without the bun. So I, I have to say, I really hoped at this scene when they're talking and they're so close to each other, I really had the hope that her mouth would drop open and her jaw would unhinge and there'd just be rows and rows of teeth and she would try to bite Sam's face off. That's what I was hoping for. And that is not what happened. Like I was trying to figure out where is this going? What is wrong with these people? Why is she spared? And so I was hoping for like a Beetlejuicy type. <laughs> You're such a horror fan. I'm like, that's exactly yeah. what I'm in a horror movie. <laughs> So we're back at the facility and we have Tilk and O'Neill and O'Neill's explaining black holes to Tilk. Why wouldn't Tilk know this already? I mean, he's an interstellar traveler, right? He probably does. He just wants to hear O'Neill's explanation. Yeah, I do feel like whenever they need to explain something to the audience, they make Tilk ask it, which is a little bit lazy. Don't you want to hear about the massive hole? <laughs> where everything is sucked in. God. Are you trying to say this, this is a shipper's corner? Between Tilk, <laughs> Tilk, Tilk and Jack. <laughs> I could totally get down with a Jack and Tilk ship. Sure. <laughs> so we're back at Cassandra's room and Sam tries to leave as Daniel slips into the room and he's like, I'll stay with the kid. And Cassandra says, please don't go. You know what? I don't blame her because she didn't want to hear about Sheree. <laughs> I don't think it was because she had bonded with Sam. She's just like, don't leave me with that man. <laughs> and this is when we find out that her name is Cassandra and her heart hurts. <laughs> yeah. So I, I absolutely thought, oh, this is because she lost her mom. She's traumatized. She's no, no, it's not. This little girl is having heart attacks. And we go to 
the medical bay and we have Dr. Frazier and Dr. Frazier decides that it is potassium deficiency. Isn't that just fixed with a banana? Isn't that where you get more? Yeah, I think that's what bananas have potassium, but I think it's like more severe than a banana cure. It's something to start with. That's what I was thinking. But she's having these arrhythmias and goes into a full on heart attack. So is the problem that she is experiencing low potassium, therefore they give her potassium, which activates the bomb. Is that what's going on? Well, later we find out that it's low potassium, low iron. And during the, when she was getting defibbed, the electricity that turned on the growing ball of nuclear bomb that was in her chest. So the, the low potassium, the low iron was what made her have the, the heart attacks? I think so. Yeah. That's and so I guess they were like in, and so they supplement, I think the bomb was forming anyway, but they supplemented it with more iron and more potassium, which I think made it form faster yeah made and then the defibrillator activated it in some way okay. yeah so this is when we have sam and dr frazier here through a stethoscope that cassandra's heart actually sounds like a machine and that's when we find out that something is growing near cassandra's heart so cassandra's on so we're in the operating theater and cassandra's on the table and of course the male doctor pushes it too far and pretty much kills Cassandra on the table while they're trying to scope her chest and find, and that's when they find this metal ball. And so this is the same doctor that operated on Kowalski, Dr. Warner. So we quickly switch to Cassandra's dreaming about her mom in her room. And that's when we find out that her mom died and Sam decides that she wants to take, she tells Daniel she wants to take care of Cassandra. Well, it was nice that at least someone mentioned that Carter didn't have to be the mom. It just seemed like everyone seemed to assume that she would be taking care of Cassandra. I I did like the show of friendship that that moment between Sam and Daniel was like, I feel like you're starting to get more deeper relationships between the team members. I don't know. I wanted to hear what you guys thought of it. I've always found that that scene between them to be weird. And I'm wondering if it's just the showrunners giving us a nod that we, they know that they're making the woman assume this mother role, or is this actually a bonding moment between Daniel and Carter? Malika, you seem to not really like Daniel much this episode. Why? Like Daniel ever. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I do, I mean, I think that he is like, not, I wouldn't call it the voice of reason, but he's the non-military person, right? In this group. So he's more open to the feelings of Cassandra and also the feelings of Sam. And he's more willing to vocalize this. I still hate him. <laughs> well, if, if O'Neill hadn't been on that planet, what do you think he would be doing? Do you think he would be helping Carter take care of Cassandra? I think so. I mean, one is because we do, O'Neill loves kids and we see that. sort of developed throughout the series. So I do think he would have a connection to Cassandra. And I also think he has a connection to Sam and wants to help her. I mean, you know, this episode is maybe starts as sort of a lazy sexist trope, but it like, it really does morph into this really intense bond between Cassandra and Sam that I just love. I, I think it's just so beautiful. 
And I also think it shows like the, the sacrifices you, like she's making. Cause she does, I think she wants kids and she has this maternal side of her and is making that sacrifice for this job. And, you know, I think that especially just women in the workforce period have to sacrifice family, but especially in the military and I guess any male dom- dominated organization where you have to suppress your own femininity and desires, period, not even talking about family, but try to be like a man to get ahead. And I think that's what she's been doing. I mean, this is her passion. She loves science and she loves the military, but you wall off parts of yourself to get ahead. So there's an appending eclipse. And then we're back in the medical office. (laughs) I think O'Neill said something like, it's starting. And then that was it. (laughs) We find out from uh, Sam and Daniel, the object in Cassandra's chest is actually decaying. And this is the experiment that's going on in the basement. So so the experiment is, it's Nakoda and potassium, and that's causing that reaction. So they have a microscopic particle of one and a microscopic particle of another. And when they touch huge, huge explosion. Obviously there's more than microscopic particles in her. So that explosion is going to be like times a million. Right. But there's potassium and Nakoda in her blood already. Right. Like we all have potassium in our blood and Nakoda. So I don't understand how two of those molecules aren't hidden each other every now and then in the blood. And why wouldn't that cause like a mini nuclear explosion at every time it happens? Am I missing something? Maybe they like float around each other. <laughs> No, I, I see where you're coming from. The, the iron, the potassium, the naquita would all be floating around inside her. Maybe the naquita is only located in her toe and everything else. It's blood in your toe. Well, and I will say that we do learn this later. So it's minor spoiler that there are people that have naquita in their blood. It's not just Cassandra, but generally when people who survive Gould implantation. So once you've had a Gould in you and that Gould is no longer in you, you always have naquita in your blood. And so we do encounter various people with that condition and nobody seems to be concerned that they're walking nuclear time bombs. Are you part of the anti-banana, <laughs> the anti-banana conglomerate? Yes, get rid of that potassium. But it seems like if your idea is that any interaction between these two elements is gonna cause an explosion, that doesn't make sense. So just pointing that out. This may not be real science here, warning. I, I didn't think of that, but thank you, Rose. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also like if it gets at the end, it gets reabsorbed into her body. Where's it going? <laughs> like, it's just going to mix up in different parts of her body. Like if it's the elements and not the device, that's the explosive factor. It doesn't make sense. If there's something about mixing them in this device, that's different, but that's not the explanation we're given. Right. Well, you know, the thing is, is that it would not be a Stargate episode if there wasn't a plot hole. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. We're back on the alien planet and O'Neill and Tilk are looking through the telescope observation. What is it called? It's a, it's a telescope, but it's not the right one. What do you mean? Well, it, it's, not, it's not powerful enough to see an eclipse. Let's just say that. Or a ship in space. I know. Zoom in <laughs> on this like Apple IIe monitor. That probably weighs like 60 pounds. (laughs) That was hilarious. 
<laughs> but yeah, we see the shit. We see the Garuld attack vessel, and Tilk is like, "Holy shit!" And what did he call it? A attack? I think it was a attack. Attack. Okay. Hattack? Yeah. So, so it's attack, not mm-hmm. attack. No attack. Attack. So we're back at the boardroom, and Daniel is telling Hammond and the other brass that's like random seat fillers that never speak. <laughs> they have the extra uniforms, like <laughs> crew members. And they're like, just put it on, sit down, don't say anything. So Daniel's telling Hammond that they were set up um, to bring Cassandra there to Earth and explode the planet. And that's when we discover that Dr. Frazier's like, we have less than two hours. I, I think that it's very interesting that she can clock it down to when this organism that they've never or not organism but this ball this bomb that they've never seen before they know exactly when it's going to degrade enough to explode the planet so then we are back at cassandra's room and sam and daniel are talking and this is when sam starts to cry because she knows that cassandra is doomed I like, I like Daniel's whole, like, who told you you're supposed to be detached? Yeah. So, I mean, he's fulfilling his role as the non-military guy whose, whose job it is to remind them that the military sucks sometimes. Yeah, but and it's kind of naive of him to say that because you know that once the woman starts crying, she's going to be known as the crier. Well, Daniel is nothing if not completely oblivious to other people's life experiences. <laughs> We're back at the facility, and this is when we actually get the name of the Gauld, Nuriti. Nerti. Nerti. <laughs> now I'm never going to get it. Who is actually a, an enemy of, of Apophis. Do we hear about her later? Does she come back? Okay. Nice. Do we get to see her? I'd like to see her. You'll be disappointed, though. Oh. Yeah. No. It's not right. as Hindu godlike as you might think one should be. Oh, no, is she a white lady? She's a brunette. <laughs> oh, that's a plus. That is an absolute. I do. I really do like the actress who plays her. But yeah, I'm like, you are not clearly not South Asian. <laughs> you should be South Asian. Well, when we knew that it, it was going to be problematic when we saw Hathor was, I know she's from South Africa, but she definitely looked like some kind of Scottish lass. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever <laughs> so this is when tilk is like well first they see little things they're called gliders yeah they're flying out of the ship and tilk's like run away run away yeah, how are they not dead i mean seriously they were like dropping bombs right behind i'm like that's some shitty shooting weren't even running that fast they weren't yeah it seemed like o'neill was was going extra slow and the bombs were exploding literally like half a foot behind him so so my my question is does tilk recognize this is near t just from the markings on this ship or because of this whole strategy that he's recognized of hers well because he mentioned that it's her when he saw that initial attack vessel. So I think then he was putting it together because once the, the gliders were coming in and O'Neill was falling into the grass on a regular basis, Tilk was like, this is what happened in the past. This is, this is her MO. 
So her whole purpose is to blow up stargates, right? And she's done this in the past with ploys. Yeah, that scene was a little rough when Tilk is providing all this exposition, like yelling all this exposition in O'Neill's face. And it's like full on yelling. Well, yeah, because they're blowing, they're trying to kill them. And there's like bombs going off. But we need to hear what he's saying too. It was just, it was distracting. So much yelling. I just, yeah, that's why I had questions. I didn't quite understand at that point. I feel like O'Neill might not care all that much about that at that moment. <laughs> like maybe that would have been better explained later at the base when he's like, why the fuck was this ship shooting at us? Then you can explain it. But right before this happened, we were in Hammond's office and that's when he decided that Cassandra had to go back. Then there, we are in the gate room and Cassandra falls into some kind of coma and O'Neill and Tilk come running as fast as they can through the gates. I like their jumping. That was like the most animated, let's get through the gate that I've seen. I mean, they're always in peril, right? But this was like, we need to go through here with speed. So at this point, Hammond has already made the decision that he's going to, they're, they're not going to try to help this girl out. They're just going to put her some way, somewhere and have her blow up. I mean, the whole idea is so horrifying, but they only have what, an hour and a half. Yeah. I mean, at that, I think Hammond's already made that decision that yeah. we're not going to try to help this girl out. We're just going to have to put her away somewhere. Yeah. But don't you, I mean, isn't that the whole point of the military is to sacrifice some or the few to protect all no i mean i think it's the only call he can make but it's just i mean it's just horrible like i mean talking about a child because i think they've resigned themselves that they can't save her so now they don't have enough time to figure out how to save her so now the idea is to just how do we contain the explosion so that it doesn't kill everybody and if the hope is that she stayed unconscious she would at least die peacefully but yeah what a horrible decision to have to make yeah o'neill brings up that there's a abandoned nuclear facility that's about 20 minutes away <laughs> how we convenient are, we are on the clock <laughs> and so we're down at the the nuclear facility we find out that there's 30 floors to go down into this basement this dark dank empty basement and it takes three minutes to get there so sam only has four minutes to come back up and at this point I was really like 50-50 on whether Sam was going to come back up. Yeah, I was I was going to ask that question too. Like, even if Cassandra hadn't woken up, would Carter still have left her there? I think Carter would have still stayed down there. Yeah, I don't think she was going to leave her. Also, like, if it's an abandoned nuclear facility, wouldn't it still be radioactive? So, I mean, they should be concerned that they're going in there in the first place. I think that was the least of their problems, maybe. <laughs> that they'll die of radiation poisoning? Yes. Like, like maybe months. 10 years from now they're gonna have it- radiation poisoning regardless that wormhole i am sure <laughs> it's more than an x-ray so this is where she gets back and she closes the yeah that's rough watching them like her like seal off that kid in this like fucking concrete tomb knowing she's gonna die i mean it's just horrible i, I have hurts. a really hard time with that scene yeah it physically hurts me to watch that scene mm-hmm. Fucking kids, they have ruined me. I know. <laughs> but not just that, but especially, I mean, she you can hear her crying. Sam, it's too door. much. I I mean, I liked Cassandra up to the point where she's like, You promised you would never leave me alone. <laughs> I was like, oh, kids are the worst guilt trippers. Aren't they? I know. 
<laughs> when she said that, I was like, yeah, Sam's dead. <laughs> so Sam's in the elevator. She's crying her eyes out. And in technology that I don't think has ever been reproduced even now, she's able to um, stop the elevator and make it go back down. <laughs> it's got to be some like military facility thing that you could do that. You know, if Elon Musk hasn't <laughs> done it, then I don't know if the military can do it. And there's electricity. That's kind of strange. Wouldn't they turn off the electricity to this abandoned nuclear facility? You would think. You never know when you have to imprison a child who's going to blow up <laughs> in 20 minutes. You need, to, you need to keep paying the light bill. So O'Neill's is, of course, freaking out and <laughs> saying, get back here. And and this is when he does call her Sam and doesn't call her captain. I think twice. He called her Sam twice. He's this freaking- is a definite shipper's corner moment. He, he was extremely distraught that she was going back down. But I, I did like the part where he there he's literally looking at his watch and it's counting down the seconds and the alarm goes off and they're all waiting for the explosion. And I was like, you know, Dr. Frazier is awesome, but I don't think she can do it. She can calculate it down to the freaking second. <laughs> Like I would leave her, leave Sam down there, talk to her on the intercom, but <laughs> leave her ass down there just in case they're like five minutes off. <laughs> yeah, true. But I did think it was touching when O'Neill tried to shoo everybody else out and Tilk and uh, Daniel were like, are you crazy? We're staying here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The team sticks together, even mm-hmm. when there's certain death involved. So do you think Carter was telling the truth? that she actually thought everything was going to be okay. And that's why she went back down. I think she was going back down anyway. And I think maybe somewhere along the way she realized that too, but I think she was going back down anyway. Yeah. I think she was just telling that to uh, O'Neill. I, I don't think she had thought things through yet. She was just going down there because she was leaving a child behind. She couldn't do that. I think she hoped, but she didn't know. Because she did later talk about how she thought that the farther that Cassandra got away from the gate, she went into the coma when she got close to the gate. And then she wakes up as they're going down in the elevator. So she had this idea. I I think that that's kind of revisionist history because I mean, she's crying her eyes out. I don't think she's like, my theory is. (laughs) So nobody dies. And now all of a sudden we're all outside. The team's outside. Cassandra's outside. Everybody has their funny clothes on. Until her mom jeans, the mom jeans. I'm like, get this woman some jeans up fit, please. The eighties are over. But also why wouldn't the device reform as she gets close to the wormhole again? Like, why are they so sure it's permanently disabled? I don't think that they think it, it's permanently disabled. I think their plan is just to have her have a family as far away as possible. So they're just going to like trust that she's not going to turn into a nuclear bomb sometime in the future and like let her walk around on earth. Yes. <laughs> With Janet Frazier in Colorado, right near the, the Stargate. <laughs> that was so funny when they're like, um, maybe Dr. Frazier is going to keep her like, She's she's a child. She's not a dog. 
Well, and also she bonded with Sam. Like, like the kid seems very chill with like, oh, so you mean you're not going to take me, Sam? Like, she seems to have bonded with this woman who is now her substitute mother. And Sam's like, oh, we're just going to find a family for you. And she's like, okay, sure. That's fine. Yeah, that seemed a little unbelievable. And and I was surprised that they did put her with Frasier. I don't think Frasier said much to this kid throughout the episode other than good job. That's all I have to do. <laughs> But then you can't ha- you can't give the kid to Carter because then the right. show will be about Carter and how she has to find a babysitter whenever she has to go off world. So <laughs> yeah, the, the, the SG one schedule does not allow for parenting. It just no. it would be very hard. Or what about that? I forgot her name. The old lady, Catherine. Yeah. What about Catherine? Because you need somebody who has high enough security clearance that knows that this why this kid doesn't know what a swing is or a dog, right? I mean, she's old, but it's humping Ernest. They're they're getting on old people sex all the time now. <laughs> Gross. Yeah, that's true. She doesn't want. That's not an appropriate setting for a child. <laughs> and how do you? How does O'Neill give? I mean, it's a gorgeous dog, but why would you? You don't have a place. This kid doesn't have a home. But you're like you have to have this dog. I appreciate the sentiment, but you know how hard it is to house a kid with a dog? O'Neill loves dogs. I think RDA likes dogs. Yeah, In fact, does. I think his dog, his actual dog appears in Stargate at some point. He, he appears as Kinsey's dog. <sighs> yes, yes, right. Yeah. Don't ask me why I know these things. <laughs> no, I knew that too, but I just couldn't remember who it was. Yeah, so is is the idea that he's giving her his dog or is this some random rescue he just got from the pound? It's just some random dog he picked up. Very chill dog. Yeah, very chill dog. Very hairy dog. Did you catch uh, O'Neill's shirt after he (laughs) gave her the dog? (laughs) The benefits of Blu-ray. You could have seen all that hair on his shirt. I like that. So yeah, Cassandra has got to be pretty fucking traumatized, right? She loses her family. She loses her planet. She loses everything she's ever known. She's left to die alone in a bunker. Not for very long. Sam does come back, but there's a few minutes there where she's like locked in a concrete room alone. That's a lot of trauma for a kid. And so I'm hoping they have some kind of plan to deal with that instead of just like, here's your dog. Good luck. Maybe it's a therapy dog. (laughs) I think we're going to need more than that. Just gonna pet that dog just constantly, <laughs> constantly. Poor thing won't have any hair. And is she the first alien that immigrates to Earth? Yeah, well, Teal'c is kind of the quasi-immigrant. But he, but he's he's kind of different because he lives on the base. She's the first one who's actually been like released into the world. Yeah. Also seems a bit like a security risk. Like they tell her, "Oh, you're from Toronto," but do you really trust? Like, what is she like? 10, 11 to to like be able to keep that kind of secret. It's a lot, it's a lot for a kid. Especially nuclear bomb kids. So I did lots of research on this episode. I don't even want to tell you the, uh, the click hole that I went down on what is singularity and my non-science brain. To, it, it was hard, dudes. It was hard. <laughs> but I think that, The principle that kind of applies to this episode is that the singularity represents a point in time where the outcome becomes inevitable and unstoppable. So I think that 
singularity kind of refers to two things um, in this episode, not just the bomb in Cassandra's chest, but it's also kind of Sam's reaction to being with Cassandra. And Cassandra was able to create that point in time where her Sam's emotions are unstoppable, are inevitable, and become kind of a turning point. I don't know what's going to happen, but I would hope that this would allow Sam to be more of an emotional person and be more fulfilled. What do you guys think? Well, TV shows back then weren't that serialized. So something cataclysmic happened to a character. The next episode, it would they would just be whistling down the, the sidewalk. So yeah, you're not, we're not going to, we are going to hear about Cassandra. She will come back. Oh yeah. Yeah. But the next episode will not have, you know, Carter rethinking her, her job or anything like that. I do think it's the beginning of her character getting a little more three-dimensional, right? Cause she, she has this sort of wide-eyed captain trying to please her commanding officer thing. And then I, I, I feel like from this point, there's a few episodes I'm thinking of in the, at the end of season one through season two that really like develop her character a lot and make her a lot more complex. And this is one of them. Good. So this is a singularity event. And what'd you find out about near tea? In the few minutes that I, I, I Googled near tea, she is the goddess of death, decay, and sorrow. So that absolutely fits. Yeah. And killed all those people. Right. It's not a nice thing to be known as. If this episode was done now, what would you guys change about this episode? I feel like it would be darker. You know, like now everything is serialized and this era of sci-fi is my favorite. This 90s like sci-fi, every episode's this adventure and everything's all nicely wrapped up. I just love it. I eat it up. It's totally awesome. Um, But it isn't that realistic. Like, you know, people go through these horrible events and there's never any processing. Um, This kid is perfectly fine by the end of this episode. That wouldn't fly. You'd have to deal with a lot more of the fallout of the trauma. Yeah, like the the next episode would be therapy for Cassandra. But I mean, this is the military. They're not known for taking care of people in their charge and giving them the mental health treatment that they need, even now. I'm glad to hear that she's going to come back. I am just going to hope that she doesn't come back as like a mass school shooter. Because that seems, if she doesn't get the counseling that she, like daily counseling, that seems the direction that she's going to go. No spoilers. <laughs> You'll have to keep guessing. She does do um, unnatural things at some point, though. With the dog? <laughs> no. Oh, no. <laughs> so Chevron's. Sam, how many chevrons would you give this episode? Uh, I would give this six chevrons. I was prepared to give it seven, but based on the identification of the plot holes, I think I'll bump it down by one. What about you, Rose? I'm going to go with six also. I do like this. It is one of my favorite episodes of season one. I love that elevator scene. I, I, I just feel like I really get what she's going through in that moment and it just, it really like springs forward Sam's character for me in the series. So I do love it for that. There are some plot holes. I think they really fucked over this kid <laughs> pretty hardcore and they don't seem to like really recognize it. So yeah, I'm going to stick with six. Well, 
before I give you guys my rating, <laughs> um, Rose, you sent me a thing about Dr. Frazier. She's like a life coach now. Mm-hmm. So she's actually the perfect foster mom for this kid, right? Well, they the, were- the actress might be. <laughs> I don't know if Aren't Dr. Frazier would thing? be. Aren't they the same thing? So I feel a little peer pressure in this six chevrons. I'm going to give it 5.5 because I'm a hard grader because it also because of the plot hole about the whole nuclear bomb in the girl's blood. So our next episode is Korai, which is episode 15 on Netflix. If you're following along, thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next week. Bye. 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 So I was hoping for like a beetle juicy type. <laughs> Please like us. Oh, and follow us on Instagram at probing the wormhole or Twitter at probing the wormhole or Facebook at probing the wormhole. You can also get in touch with us at our website, probing the wormhole.com.